What's up everyone, welcome to episode 30 of the Noise Podcast, brought to you by Noise.co.uk. I am your host, slash your boy, Chris Pugh, and I'm joined by my very good friend and Mr Cynical himself, Samuel Lewis. Mate, how are you? I'm very well, man. Another good one today. Another good one today indeed. Mate, I finished Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order today. Oh, did you like it? Wonderful. I, uh, well, one of the problems that I had was that I wanted to go through like blind and not look anything up. Yeah. So and I put it on hard because I saw it was going to be like a kind of like Dark Soulsy kind of game. So I put it on hard to make it a change for myself because I, I love Dark Souls and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but because I was going through like blind, so many that... humble brags already in the first sentence of what you just said. <laughs> there's so many. There's a load of like health pickups and like skill points that you can get that I just didn't know where they were. So come the end of the game, the the final boss, which I won't give away for any, in case anyone's like listening to this that hasn't played it, the final boss was a pain in the arse for me because I didn't have all the health that I could possibly have had and I couldn't backtrack because there's no fast travel in the game. It's like yeah. you land on a planet and like you go explore the planet. And there's mo- yeah. there's obviously areas where you can meditate and reset your health and stuff, but other than that, you fuck like <laughs> if mm-hmm. there's a that you can't fast travel back to another place. So at the end of the game, the final boss, I've got like like seventy percent of the maximum health you can probably have in the game, which sounds yeah. like you'd be like, oh no, that'd be fine, wouldn't it? But the final boss is quite difficult. Um, <laughs> so I'm there with like 70% of the health I can possibly have thinking fuck this is really difficult and it took me about an hour and a half today to do it but I really enjoyed it man are you still playing it? Um, sporadically yeah man like mate you just smash power come on and Mario Kart don't you so <laughs> <Zelda> <laughs> I'm, playing a lot, I'm playing a lot of Zelda at the moment and I'm in 2024 of an NBA Lakers franchise where I just drafted LeBron James's son um, oh, you yeah. showed me that picture. Yeah, I was into it. Yeah, so uh, that that's where my gaming habits are at this moment in time. But I shall return to Star Wars. I'm still in that temple. Oh, the um, one that you messaged me about, and you was like, "Hey, the fuck." Yeah, 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 yeah. I was like, <laughs> I'll put it in my drawer. I was like, I'll do this when I'm less angry. I just haven't calmed down. <laughs> it's been two months, and you're still furious. Yeah, yeah. Every so often, I just wake up in the middle of the night thinking about it, like punching pillows. <laughs> You haven't known peace since you went to that temple. <laughs> since that temple, I've just been restless. This is a rock and metal podcast brought to you every fortnight. We are available on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Music. I wanted to mention because I was given the message during the last episode that we did that we'd been nominated for the Cardiff Music Awards. So thank you for whoever uh, chose to nominate us. That's really wicked. You can vote for us by going to CardiffMusicAwards.com and selecting us for Best Press. That would be awesome. A really cool thing for the site. We've been up for the award a couple of times and not quite managed to win. So if we can manage to just creep out the line this time, that would be wicked. But if not, it was really cool to be nominated anyway. On the last episode of the Noise Podcast, we did reviews on Green Day, Suicide Silence and Polaris. Matt, you still banging that Polaris album? Yeah, it's incredible. I haven't got any worse. I haven't. Just amazing. So brilliant. I haven't got cooler to it yet. I'm st- it's Not still me I'm still listening to it like it's the first time I ever heard it. And still 100%. feel all shocked and just really open and ready to bring everything out, every single drip from the record I can get. So great. Um 
on Noise.co.uk at the moment, you can find our written live review on the Menzingers in Bristol. As well as album reviews on In Technicolor's Big Sleeper and Vice's Heroics. On this week's show, on the Noise Podcast, we're going to run through the news. I went to see Counterparts in Birmingham last Friday. And then myself, Sam and Podcast. Sorry, Podcast. A noise owner extraordinaire. Jack Holloway, so theoretically he does own the podcast. Me, Sam and Jack went to see the Menzingers in <laughs> London, so we're going to talk about that. Sam's got another five albums from his greatest metal album of all time list, and we're going to do something a little bit different for album reviews this week. So, with that, I we, we were hoping that we would get the Four Year Strong album this week, which unfortunately we didn't, for whatever reason that might be. Um... So I'm sitting here scrolling through albums that are coming out, trying to think of something that we could review. And I, I even rem- I think I remembered messaging you saying, I'm going to pick an album that's already come out this year that we've missed because of, of the busyness of the weeks that we've done. And you were like, yeah, cool, no problem. But as I was really thinking about it, I was like, you know what, I don't want to just pick something out of thin air that, that's already come out that's no longer in the topic of conversation, that we might not even care about anyway. Why don't we review something that we do care about? So I came up with this idea where I picked an album that you had to review that you'd never heard before, and vice versa, you for me. So I picked for Sam, Time and Space by Turnstile, and Sam picked for me August and Everything After by Counting Crows. So two very, very different albums there. And I'm very interested to hear Sam's thoughts. And I'm very interested to share my thoughts on Counting Crows as well. I wanted to mention as well, as you will have noticed by the title of the episode, there is a Chris Meats interview on this episode of the Noise Podcast. And that is with Luke Priestley, who is the founder slash owner of Stereo Brain Records. Very fascinating chat with him about how he got into the industry, what made him get into the industry, personal stories from him about what it's like to be in that line of work at this current climate in the music industry itself. So stick around at the end of the episode for that. It's about a 45-minute chat, very interesting, really nice guy. And I think that if you have got interest in potentially owning a label or something like that at some point, you will find a great deal of interest and intrigue in that interview. Sam, are you ready to dive into the news? Yeah, man, let's do it. Uh, Green Day scored their fourth UK number one, Sam. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I can <laughs> sense the disdain in your voice already. Did they re-release Dookie? <laughs> so, despite the absolute dreadful lack of quality on the album, Father of All Motherfuckers uh, charted number one in the UK. It's, the, it's Green Day's fourth number one album, American Idiot, 21st Century Breakdown, and believe it or not, Sam, 2016's Revolution Radio uh, got number one. I mean... I think... I think that's quite fascinating, that is, because if you look at that, 2004's American Idiot, 2009's 21st Century Breakdown, it skips the trio of albums, and then it goes to 2016's Revolution Radio and their father of all. What a steep steep slide that is <laughs> in quality my goodness is it what's happened is the listener will click on the album enough and then realize that it's shit and go off but it'll still be it'll still count towards the um the charting whereas with the trio of albums they heard the first one and left the second and third alone i believe that is the case but also, which is, the, which is why the trio didn't make it up there but also this album sold like twenty three thousand copies which is very respectable in this day and age. 
with the power and popularity of streaming to actually sell 20 odd thousand copies is i've got to say so that's about impressive. 230 grand which would have been better suited putting it into a fan and spraying it on the top of a uh, of a building <laughs> toward, towards the ocean not even towards needy children or anything literally towards fish oh just to give the money out there to no one yeah yeah 100 percent uh so i'm not going to stay on this topic for too long because we we spoke about the album at length but an interview with billy joe following the news he was like oh we've got loads more songs by the way i've written like four songs since the first single came out Oh, and these are the ones that you didn't think were good enough to put on Father of All? <laughs> so he, That's reassuring. So he said, we're at a point now where we can put basically anything out. I'm paraphrasing here, but the, I'm, you know, to the point, this is pretty much what he's saying. He's like, we've got enough songs, we can just put out a single here or an EP there, and we can just drop them out. And I'm thinking, oh, f- mate, fucking keep them to yourself. This isn't like unreleased print singles that like people are like, oh shit, new Prince music. No, you can keep this to yourself, bro. We're not interested here. <laughs> so I just wanted to make mention that they got number one. And you know what? I'm, I'm more annoyed that Revolution Radio got number one. Great. Speaking of strange things that a decade can do, Sam, I'm going to mention... Because it is in the news and I saw a lot of people talking about it. EU bands will need touring visas to perform in the UK from 2021. How much of this have you seen in the news? How much have you seen uh, this being spoken about? Because I've seen this being spoken about a lot. Yeah, I've, I've seen, I've seen, I've seen the build up towards this, and it's the same thing with the same concerns have been shared across a variety of industries, haven't they? And I think music is one of the latest ones to really start to panic. Uh, um, about the effect the EU has in the same way that business owners are. So, what I'm going to do, I'm going to read quote-unquote verbatim from the Kerrang article, just to give a bit of background and full information idea. So, Mm -hmm. not only will a tier 5 visa be required for gigs and festivals, etc., it also applies if any non-UK artists are coming to the country for promotional activities, workshops, talks and other such events. This visa is expected to cost £244, and on top of that, applicants must reportedly also prove that they have £1,000 in savings 90 days before even applying for it. Uh, Gov.uk's policy statement on how the UK's new points-based immigration system will work reads, We will not be creating a dedicated route for self-employed people. We recognise that there are several professions where there is a heavy reliance on freelance workers. They will continue to be able to enter the UK under the innovator route and will in due course be able to benefit from the proposed unsponsored route. The UK already attracts world-class artists, entertainers and musicians and we will continue to do so in the future. The UK's existing rural permit... The UK's existing rules permit artists, entertainers and musicians to perform at events and take part in competitions and auditions for up to six months. They can receive payment for appearances at certain festivals or for up to a month for a specific arrangement without the need for a formal uh, sponsorship or a work visa. So, I've seen several people. I think think what I've seen here is the classic case of people read the headline and then make an opinion from that. And don't actually read the finer details. So I've seen a lot of people respond with, oh my God, 
it's it's the end of the music industry for the UK. The, you know, the, the UK oh, yeah. music industry is going to really going to suffer. Which I, I've got to say that I, I don't believe that's true, and I think that what people might be doing there is reading the headline, and their imagination is running away with them. Yeah, Co- uh, Cody from Condra put up a really interesting post on Facebook, and he was like, "I've seen a lot of you worrying about this." Um, it's going to be a much more, it's going to be a bigger pain in the arse, but it's not the worst case scenario because you can get like a sponsorship for a three month visa and you don't have to pay to get into the country. I think the amount that you can get for the three month, it, it's going to cost like £240 or something like that. Because um, again, uh, to read the full gov.uk policy would take a long time. I'm not going to read that out loud on the podcast. And I think what people have done here is people who've already got an idea of what Brexit is and dislike that have been like, see, here's another bad reason why we shouldn't leave the European Union. And regardless of what I think of being in the European Union or not being in the European Union, I don't think this is going to have a major effect on a lot of EU artists. What I mean by that is, It's not going to be a problem for Gajira to prove they've got a £1,000 in savings before they come and tour the UK. It's not going to be a problem for Cavellatac to do that. It might might be a problem for young EU bands that have been selected to be a support on a small UK tour, for example. Counterparts, which I'll get to in the live view shortly, but they were in... 150 cap venues, which most of them were sold out, may I say, but they were in 150 cap venues on this tour. So if they were to select uh, an artist from France to come and support them on the tour, that might be a problem for that artist because they might not have a £1,000 in savings each member because they're a young foreign band that are trying just starting out the they're plying their trade. They're trying to gain as many followers as they possibly can. I think what this means is you will find less European acts on smaller tours. And I think it means as well that record labels or management for bands aren't going to sign the dotted line in terms of paying sponsorship fees and visa fees to send EU bands to the UK unless... The Spotify and Apple Music listenership in certain countries reflects that there's going to be an audience there to make it worthwhile. What I mean by that is Spotify and Apple Music break down for you who's listening and where. So I think unless management see that there's a lot of people listening in the UK, if you're a young band, it's going to be a while till you get paid to come and tour the UK. What do you think of this? Well, to be... To be frank, I've got a few opinions. Um, number one, um, the fact that a dueling, um, a touring visa is to be created as a separate version of the EU passport situation to alleviate this situation to begin with is already a step beyond what the Brexit panic um, referred to, you know, being the end of the music industry, like you stated. The fact that this is a, uh, a dueling visa is even an option shows that it's actually easier than people are, are already imagining that it's going to be. Secondly, I agree with you in the sense that it's not going to make a massive difference to bands that are uh, well well supported and well followed. 
Um, me, me and you talk about like the waning sales of CDs and things like that. I was re- doing a little bit of reading on this, Chris. There's a statistic of the BBC that said the British, just UK record labels made £839 million last year. Right. That's, okay. that's 80% of a billion pound in one year. So Was I that think profit I'll, or revenue? Just the amount of money that they made. Right, okay. So that probably is just complete revenue, I'll be honest. However, it's still showing that there's still a massive amount of money coming in and out of that music industry. So, I mean, I agree with you. I mean, if 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 Lady Gaga goes on tour next year, I think she's still going to be able to get through customs. Yeah. Um, but frankly, if it means that we stop sending bands of like young lads from Europe around the UK to play in front of 20 people, earn no money, bankrupt themselves and go back and having made no headway. That's probably a good thing for that band long term. If you look if you look over um, any, if you have conversations with any bands, young and upcoming bands, um, going on a European tour too early is like make or break. <laughs> and quite often it, it can be break. Like you pour all your money, you quit all your job, you go away to France, Germany, Italy or whatever. Um, you get stitched up by the uh, the gig owner who tells you the place is sold out. You turn up your plan in front of 15 people in a pub in um, some random city in Germany. And then you've just got to pay to go to the next place. And it becomes the same situation that you're doing at home. Just you've had to pay to be there. So if it means that bands are more conservative in making massive risky moves to tour across the world when they're not quite ready for it, then that might keep younger bands around a little bit longer. Um, especially in the hardcore scene where bands blow up on Spotify, do the big tour and then just seem to disappear because I can't continue anymore. Um, maybe that means that bands spend more time in the studio and we actually get more material to build the fan base to then do the tour. There could be positives to be taken from this. Um, so I'm not I'm not overly worried. I think the big I, I think that the big faces of the music industry won't won't shift at all because it's just too big an industry and the record labels will support. But if it forces record labels not um, not to thrust young and unready bands into situations that could break them because it actually costs the record label rather than the band, then I don't think that's an issue at all because it's about time that the record label were financially responsible for the situations that they placed their musicians in. Just to give further clarity on what I was saying earlier, because I mentioned that there was a levy that you could get where you wouldn't have to pay the fee to come into the country, that there's like a concession you can get that negates the, I think it's £245 per person. You you need need to prove that you're like an internationally recognised artist, which is the process that you need to go through if you go to the USA and you're a UK artist as well. But yeah, that's that's pretty standard. You know, if you if you go into the USA, they ask you to con- there's like they want you to confirm that you're an internationally recognised artist and that you've got some savings, and you need to have like a US employer, and in this case, you need to have a UK employer, which I'm assuming the booker of the tour would be your employer. And how many tours in the UK in the last three months? None that I have ever known. <laughs> so not really, not really in a single country. No. So really, this shouldn't have much effect. And I think it's an interesting point that you make that actually this might benefit some bands. A, a recent an example I can use to branch off of that. When I went to see Being as an Ocean 
last November, there was a support band called Novelis FR, a French metalcore band. They were perfectly decent, but I can't imagine that they would have been on that stage had they have all needed to have a £1,000 in savings and pay for a visa to come over. Yeah. And I'm not sure how much the tour cost them to go on, and I don't know how much profit they made from it, if any. But if you had to, if you put a gun to my head, I would suggest that they might have broken even. I wouldn't be confident that they made profit. So an interesting point there, maybe it would be decent for bands that won't, now just be shot out on tour to tour the the UK when they're not quite ready and the expense might actually make or break them. Yeah, that that's that that's the that's the feeling that I get. The moment that the record label actually becomes fiscally um tied to the band themselves, you'd be amazed at how conservative suddenly they become. Um and I think I don't think this is an issue. And and if actually as well, if it means that big bands rather than dragging um and I've got no issue with this whatsoever, but in this there might be some benefit. Rather than dragging a band from France all the way around Birmingham, Manchester, if they do a situation where they have a local band from Birmingham, a local band from Manchester, a local yeah. band from London, and they appeal to their own fans in their own area, that, that would be fantastic for the yeah. music industry. Like, we know loads of, of pretty good local, local Wolverhampton metal bands, um, who would benefit massively. Imagine imagine having an opportunity for a band like Monasteries or Recall the Remains being able to like be the play like half an hour opening for counterparts. Yeah. It would be huge. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Rather than taking a band from France who no one over here might have heard of, but they have to Do you know what I mean? You're not gonna if you're a French metalcore fan, can you afford to drag your ass over to Birmingham in front of 200 people to see the first 15 minutes of your French hardcore metal band? Or are you just going to wait for them to play outside your house again? Like, you know what I mean? That Even even as I'm explaining it now, it seems mental that bands even do that to begin with. Yeah. So to this, if it forces people to look at the local talent, um, maybe have competitions in the lead up to the tours where bands can apply play in front, send videos off to the band, and the band picks a band per region, pretty much like Metallica do. But it can be done on a lot, much lower level quite easily. And that would be terrific. Like, you're playing in, like, Norway, and you're, bit, you're opening with, like, a Scandinavian metal band, and they're, like, a black metal band, which means the crowd are into it because it's a local black metal band, and that's tied to the region. Then you go over to, like, France and Germany, and it's, like, an industrial metal band that really suits the region. How cool would that be? And then metal's moving forward, rather than hoping that, four 22 year olds with not a penny between them aren't going to either a fall out with each other b run out of money or have a drug overdose by the time you're on the 15th day of the tour like it makes the more i think about this this actually might benefit sensible bands doing sensible things when they hold their labels to account and i, and I, I that that might not be a bad thing for the industry moving forward imagine nigel farage inadvertently helping the metal scene <laughs> That is, I'm sure that was his intention going, be, I think. Be, be, literally, that would be, be one of my favourite things to have come out the last three years of British politics, to be frank with you. And there wouldn't be many. <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. So, Sam, I caught Counterparts last Friday, uh, last Thursday, actually, sorry, in Birmingham. Not going to go over it for too long, because we've got still got a lot to go over on the podcast. But, mate, what a fucking time it was. Just as a, as a, a drawback, how much did you love that new record? Oh, it's terrific. It's a fantastically written metalcore album. What if I told you that they played 
like seven songs from it. <laughs> I would be really pleased, and I'm glad that they also recognise that it's a fantastically written metal album. So it was at Mama Roo's in Birmingham, which if anyone's listening hasn't been there, it's it's a very small. I mean, it's a bar, really, more than anything. It's a else. it's a living room, is what it is. Yeah, I mean, it's a really cool layout, and there's stairs you can go up to watch to watch the show from upstairs if you want to do so. Although, what I've got to say is there wasn't many people upstairs because the show was sold out. Everyone was on the floor. I was right at the front, and it was small, sweaty, hot, really atmospheric, really, really tremendous show. There's not a lot of melodic hardcore bands that can hang with counterparts, if any. They're just so well-drilled and so good at it. And they've got a front man in Brendan Murphy who has got so much laid-back charisma. It, it, it is really untrue. There's a video going around on Twitter where they're playing at the Dome in London and they must have had a guest vocalist on to do a, a part in a song. I can't actually make it what song it is because obviously it's record, this part's recorded through a phone and a phone audio at a gig is grainy at best. And Brendan is there doing the bottle flip challenge while this guy is doing, <laughs> doing the vocals and he lands it and he starts kicking off on stage. And it's just, <laughs> it's just, the, it's just the funniest thing. And... You know, randomly people, going back to the Birmingham show, randomly people were throwing pillows on stage and he was acknowledging it. Um, he was saying jokes to the crowd and then it, it's great because, like, he drops these, like, he takes the piss out of the crowd and, like, and takes the piss out of metalcore and then drops into absolute, horrible, really low-tuned rippers like No Servant of Mine and Bouquet and Separate Wounds off the new album, which I just absolutely adore. It was such such a great show and I, re- I remember Brendan Murphy saying before in an interview that he hates when interviewers ask him why aren't you bigger in Europe because he's like I don't know why stop bringing it up I'm sorry that we're not massive in Europe <laughs> do you have to bully us with it every two minutes but <laughs> this tour in the UK yes they were playing small venues but 90% of it all sold out everyone there was buying merch everyone there was massively massively into it so you know what, man? They are they're a much bigger deal in America than they are in the UK. But there's no doubt in my mind that I've made a good amount of money from this tour off merch alone. Because merch, in, <laughs> I bought a hoodie, but it, it, outside of me, merch was flying off the shelves for them. Uh, played a great set, so sick. Um, I really, mate. If they're ever around again, I've got to drag you with me, man. I think you'd really dig it. I'm in. I'm in. They're a fantastic band anyway. It's no surprise that a band that sounds that good on records. It's going to be a great live experience. We're going to move on to the Menzingers, Sam. Uh, we caught them in London. It's been a gig that I've been looking forward to, literally, for since the second that we booked the tickets. Oh, I have been ecstatic for this gig. For me, you yes. and Jack, to be in London watching the Menzingers, who have become one of my favourite bands, and their last two albums, Hello Exile, obviously, anyone listening knows how much I adored that, but also 2017's After the Party, also, almost equally, for me, is brilliant as Hello Exile. So I just couldn't wait for this show. Couldn't wait to be there with you and Jack and, and get fully immersed. Surprised they met a wankers, though. <laughs> for there, I've got to say. It caught me off. I cursed us, didn't I? Because when we were in the pub before we went, and I was like, there's not going to be a wanker there, which is great, because why would you be a wanker at the Menzingers? And it turns out... so many wankers. It turns out there was more wankers there than any gig I've ever been to. Literally, I got I got shoved around less in the pits and not loosened straight from the path. 
yeah, then these I, randomers just banging, just barging into me as they walk past. I'm just like, bro, just act, just ask me to move and I'll move for you, you twat. Yeah, honestly, like, it was really strange. I don't know whether it was the concoction of, like, the, maybe it was London or maybe it was, like, um, the, the fact that it wasn't a metal show. People tend to be polite at metal gigs. Of it just, they do. It just, it just, it just seems to be maybe the threat of a real mosh pit keeps people really polite with yeah. each other outside of the pit. It, yeah. It's really strange to say, but I I agree with you, man. It seemed like an overwhelming surplus of people that had never been to a gig before and had no idea how to get from A to B without being a complete tool about it, um, and like had no had no idea how to handle the drink. Or just their like personal space or anything like. Obviously, I've been to I'm not to, I've been to like hundreds of gigs, me and you have at least, and there's always a couple of twats. Like you can just move out of the way, but this was like everywhere you went. It was um it was it was a it was a it was a stain on the it was a stain on the gig, um but didn't take away from the Menzingers performance. Oh yeah, mate, me. mate, let's get into it. How fucking phenomenal were they? They were terrific. They were absolutely terrific. It was, it was the songs were delivered with the sort of soul and grit and and a rawness that you actually wanted. Um, the the twin vocalist style works beautifully live. It allows the it allows each of them to 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 to, to not lose of stamina and, and lose lose suction at the gig or anything like that, which I think is terrific. I thought the the rapport with the fans was fantastic and. Obviously, outside of the, the criticisms that we had a little bit earlier, um, the the crowd were just in phenomenally, oh, phenomenally, phenomenally attached to the band, and there was a, a very clear connection between the music and the and the and the, and the fans. Something which took me a bit by surprise. <laughs> Excuse me, because I still came into the impression that because we're a relatively small band, and this this assuaged my concerns in that sense where. It felt like there was a massive link between the music being played and the and the songs being heard and, and the crowd themselves, which I thought was fantastic. And the set list was great. Um, it was well balanced. Um, it was a lovely blend of the new material and the older material, which they knew were going to draw, draw the sing-alongs. I thought it was fantastically performed. Um, they just rattled through their stuff, which I, I massively respect a band that does that. Um, uh, because while I like the occasional niceties and the, the little thank you for coming and all that sort of stuff, I do also I do prefer it massively when a band just says, "Look, man, we know that we're here to play music. We're just going to rattle through." And and that's what it was. It was a whistle stop tour through some of their better material, and they sounded absolutely fantastic while doing it. It's hard for me to look at the show without being biased because the band have become to mean so much to me. But even objectively speaking, it felt really great to be a part of that crowd. Because you could see what it meant to the band. Like, they'd be in the middle of playing and you'd see Tom and Greg, the vocalist, just smiling at each other, like, just acknowledging this is so sick. Because that, if that show wasn't sold out, oh my goodness, it must have been close. Because it was absolutely heaving oh, you, in that venue. But, yeah, you couldn't move from, from right at the back. Um, if you were anywhere from the merch stand onwards, you were pretty much sort of shoved in, which I, I imagine made the situation of the crowd a little bit worse. Everyone felt a little bit frustrated, a little bit antsy. Um, but no, it was it was it was a terrific um it was, I think it's a big win for Menzingers to, to get a London show like that at the conclusion of a tour 
it puts a real exclamation mark on their on their on their tour leg as a whole, and I think they would have taken that as a really massive victory for them. At least I hope so, because it felt like one. How great was high school friend man? Me, you, and Jack like the the, <laughs> the, the trio, the trio embrace. Yeah, it was it was lovely. There were lots of moments like that. It yeah. was it was um it was a gig that I could enjoy in a very passive sort of way. I found myself just watching and sort of find myself just immersed in the music and and letting the music sort of take me elsewhere, which I, which I think is really nice and really rare um, because metal gigs, while the music is obviously incredibly um, immersive as well, it, it, it's, a, it's in a way where you have to still keep your wits about you because you might have your nose removed at any given moment. Whereas with the menzingers, I could literally like sort of, be absent-minded, if that makes sense. You could just sort of fade into the messages and the songs. I remember turning to you, um, to you two, and saying, they sound so incredibly American all yeah. the time. And and I meant that as a compliment in the way that they couldn't be from anywhere else. Like, you listen to the songs and the, 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 word, the, the words that they use and the way that they sing the songs and the melodies that they, that, that they construct, and it it couldn't be picked anywhere else but suburban America. And it does feel like for an hour and a half, that's where you go. And I like that when the band takes you on a bit of a journey, which is incredibly hard to do live, um, to almost to forget that there are five people in front of you on a stage. And it's all very abundantly clear that you're in one particular world. And then to be taken to another one, despite all everything around you pointing to the opposite. It's easy to get lost inside an album when you're just listening to it putting the earphones in and you can properly immerse yourself but to be immersed live i think is an incredible achievement and i think that the band were able to do that for me at least um because i like i said i enjoyed it in a, a very meditative way rather than like i wasn't jumping up and down throwing my hands in the air and things like that i was just able to be swept along by the band and the album did that and it was it was really nice to, to, to have that feeling live as well I took great pleasure in the amount of people that I, I would look around and I could see that they connected to the songs as strongly as I did. A song on the set is called Your Wild Years. Again, another song about, another song about the Menzingers about being young and growing older. And that's a song that I personally connected with from the After the Party album. And I, I just took a second to just look around the crowd that, who were around us while while it was being played and there was so was many for their like 20s wiping tears off their cheek like literally there were so many like closed eyes like with arms in the air singing the lyrics and i was like man this is what this band have done they've cultivated this audience that is so so engrossed in the story that they've told that they just connect with it in an almost meteoric ethereal fashion i, I love the gig our souls aside, what an amazing, amazing time. And the finish on After the Party, which is my favourite Menzingers song, and I'm pretty sure you saw me as immersed as I've ever been in any gig ever for like yeah, 90 minutes. Yeah, it was I, terrific. I, I had a ridiculous time. The Menzingers are a ridiculous band. I've got so much ad- admiration, just general respect for them. And when they're tour again, we'll go again, won't we? Yeah, I believe, I believe we will. This and... time wearing shoulder pads. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think, I think, yeah, they've, they've definitely gained a few legitimate fans in in me, you and Jack, especially you two, who appear to be having your midlife crisis as the gig was unfolding. <laughs> That's a very rude thing to say. 
about, about Jack. <laughs> I'm only joking, obviously. It was just, there was just like a lovely mix of, of like raw emotion and in Jack's eyes, a real panic. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh shit, I'm nearly 35. <laughs> 100%, 100%. But yeah, it was just a lovely experience. Um, shout out to Camden Underworld and oh, the World man. Temple, by the way. A duo, a duo of bar and club um, combination. I have yet to find a better one, honestly. Same. Absolutely brilliant. Like, terrific. Tailor-made for us. Tailor-made. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. It's so good that I, I, I nearly forgot about the bitterness I felt when I was charged £6.20 for a drink. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was so good. I just... It was okay. I'm all right with it. I'm like, yeah, this is a great place. I should... I should pay to be here. I'll pay £8.20. I'll give him a £2 tip every time. Yeah, Just for absolutely. existing. Yeah. Thanks for playing Linkin Park. Appreciate it. We're going to move on to your greatest metal album of all time, this Sam. I believe we're running from numbers 27 to 23 now. We are getting close. Yes, we are. Um, we're getting ever close to the top 20 metal albums of all time. And we're now at the point, I think, where we are... At the point where, if you're a self-respecting um, metal fan, I think you'd have at least heard of these albums. Um, so I'm going to start at number 27. Uh, it came out in 1994. It literally created a genre. It is, of course, the self-titled Corn album. Ah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's not just here for the societal impact, um, although that is massive because uh, new metal was one thing, and then Corn came along, and then it was something else. Um, you could argue that new metal was non-existent and then Korn came along and then it was created. No band sounded like Korn, or at the very least, no band remotely sounded like Korn did at the start with the drop A, I repeat that, drop A, guitar uh, guitar tone, uh, combined with Jonathan Davis's vocals, um, starting out with Blind and also featuring songs like Shoots and Ladders. This is one of the most impactful albums of the 90s and gave way to a genre that literally defined the next decade of metal music so without a shadow of a doubt number 27 the corn self-titled debut the next one is alice in chains dirt um this is the quintessential alice in chains album this is one of the great um grunge albums of all time this is featuring not only one of the great um grunge vocal performances from lane staley who is just phenomenal um but it also features one of the all-time great um, guitar performances um, from uh, Jerry Cantrell. Uh, it features Wood, Question Mark, Them Bones, Rooster, Down a Hole that were all released as singles. It's one of the um, top 10 great grunge albums, which, you know, along with Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Nirvana, um, but also was a lovely um pseudo grunge metal album also mixing with that blue stuff and it's just a, an absolutely wonderful album it was even nominated for a grammy so it received like massive sort of um, legitimate um critical reception here so number 26 alice in chains dirt um number 25 the 25th greatest metal album of all time and chris i remember forcing you to listen to this on a plane home from new york and it's van halen's debut album Ah, yes. What a time I had listening to this album on the way back um, from New York. I do hope you enjoyed it as much as I do. I think this is one of the great albums of all time. This is one of, this is one of my top 15 favourite albums. This is. Um, this was released in like the late 1970s. And yet, 
um, sounds honestly like it was just pulled from outer space at the time. Um, a combination of the guitar tone, the, the, the hard rock stylings, the guitar work, the drumming, the instrumentation, and David Lee Roth's incredible voice gave birth to just one of the all-time most memorable and iconic bands. But in terms of um, the actual song quality, um, Eruption, Ain't Talking About Love, um, Jamie's Crying, um, the famous cover of You've Got Me, um, catapulted Van Halen as one of the great all-time rock bands almost immediately, and as well as catapulting Eddie Van Halen as one of the all-time great um, rock guitarists. Every guitarist who have uh, has ever lived beyond a reasonable point has tried to play Eruption, and majority of them have failed because of the level of difficulty that it was. Um, Eddie Van Halen pretty much invented the guitar tap um, on this album, which has since become an incredible um, weapon in a guitarist arsenal, very notably on like Metallica songs and Iron Maiden songs and things like that, and, and modern metal, uh, metal guitarists as well. Um, this is the birth of one of the, the great all-time rock, um, rock bands, and it is one of the all-time great rock debuts, honestly. I think alongside Black Sabbath's opener, um, Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction, Metallica's Kill 'Em All, um, this is one of the the five to ten best debut albums of all time, and, and is is well worth a spot here. Um, at twenty four comes the great and underrated band Megadeth with Rust in Peace. Um, this is one of Megadeth's true trio um, of their great albums. It features Hangar eighteen, Holy War, The Punishment Is Due, Tornado of Souls. Um, all three are massive parts of their set list in, until recent years, especially Hangar 18 and Holy Wars. Um, the a combination of the compositions here, the transitions, the guitar work, the songwriting, um, it combines like Rush-esque prog metal stylings with Metallica-esque um, guitar work alongside Dave Mustaine's much sharper um, politically charged lyrics um, than the majority of um of metal bands at the time, incredibly witty um, writer was Dave Mustaine, and and honestly features um, just some some absolutely terrific and uh, terrific guitar work songs. Um, it's not maybe this best album, but it is one of the top three best albums, and and is one of the reasons why Megadeth are massively rooted as one of the big four of all time in thrash metal and beyond. That was sorry, um, did you say that was nineteen ninety six? No, no, this was this was nineteen ninety. 1986 Megadeth album was um, um, Peace Sells But Who's Buying. Ah, that's the one. Which was the, yeah. uh, one of the other legendary uh, Megadeth album that came out during that period of time. Man, metal in 1986. Fucking hell. Yeah, it did all right, didn't it? It was... Um, <laughs> It's definitely a, definitely one of the great years uh, of all time. Um, at 23, um, Iron Maiden's debut, Iron Maiden. Um, the reason that this is so high up there is because not just A, it's Iron Maiden's debut, but A, it's Iron Maiden's debut. Um, <laughs> um, it spawned a new genre of music, the new wave of British heavy metal, which eventually um, influenced bands such as Slayer and Metallica, which you may have heard of. And the, uh, and the, the the level of writing on here, even with um, the lesser known vocalist Paul Dianio, is just absolutely terrific. Like, um, the, this features some of the best guitar work that ever came out during that period of time, and it came out in, it came out in 1980. So everyone else was listening to sort of like Blizzard of Oz and and Back in Black and Iron Maiden were combining the fast paced punk rock with the 
slower guitar led prog rock and sort of mixing it together to create this new um this new um this new sound this new style and as a result um started to really really change the face of metal that eventually led to the the big 80s thrash metal explosion which is still considered legendary so this is you know this was metallica before metallica in terms of songwriting style it features running free sanctuary the, the title track iron maiden which has since been covered by like trivia metallica etc 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 phantom of the opera which is one of my all-time favorite um um, I am mad in songs. Um, it's a six minute long song that has three guitar solos and like a bass solo bit at, in the middle, um, which just, it just screams like you, you can just imagine Kurt Hammett and like James Hetfield listening to this when they're like 16, like losing their mind. And it just set the tone for Iron Maiden to become one of the, one of the most impactful metal, um, metal bands. And this is again for metal, one of the most important and influential um debut albums of all time as well as one of the albums that really set iron maiden as a core band in metal and one of the reasons that they've been incredibly dominant over the following the last 40 years and that that concludes us at 23 um so we are heading towards that top 20 but that is where we are so far sam i've got to say that obviously the albums that you've that you've done in the more recent stages you already had a great detailed knowledge on anyway but the fact you've gone from 100 onwards here man i've got to say dude this has been such a labor <laughs> of love I, i'm massively <laughs> massively impressed man and i can't wait oh, till so we much. get till we get to the top 20 where we start breaking down segment by segment full discussions on each album and then as i've mentioned before top 10 we'll do episodes solely based on each album, so there's a, still yeah, a it's... lot of chat to be had about this uh, greatest metal album of all time list. Absolutely agreed. I'm also writing them up, so I'm, I'm doing it as a big, big article that's eventually going to be published in sections. We'd hope on the website, which would be quite nice. But that is also um, a labour of, of of love. I would even use the word love at this point, but it's definitely a labour. <laughs> a labour of existence. <laughs> yeah, a labour of labours. I would say. Sam, we're going to move on to album reviews again. In case anyone missed the intro and you've skipped through, we didn't quite manage to get hold of the album that we wanted to do uh, on this episode, which was going to be Four Year Strong's new one. So instead of, I didn't want to just search through and find an album that was coming out or something that had been out previously that we'd missed that we didn't originally care about. So I thought, you know what? Let's let's talk about something that I know we definitely will care about. I selected an album for Sam that he'd never listened to, and he did the same for me. So we're going to start with Turnstile that I selected for you, Time yep. and Space. I'm going to, before I give you the floor, I'm just going to tell the listeners why I selected this album for you. I've been talking to you about this band for quite a while, but it's one of those things where I see you generally once or twice a week, and I don't always have 25 minutes spare to just chuck you an album on yeah. the floor with, without us talking through it or laughing or drinking and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's been very difficult for me. <laughs> <laughs> I can't play is... your music without you drinking, Sam. God. <laughs> to be fair... Every time me... I hear a riff, I like, I need a beer. <laughs> but to be fair, with me and you, us drinking usually does get in the way, mostly. You yeah, know, us listening true. to music together. Anyway, I haven't really had the chance to sit you down and be like... Give me 25 minutes, I'm going to show you why this band are really good, and I think you'll really like them. So the reason why I chose Turnstile for you is, you're someone that loves intensity in music, but 
not overtly extreme. Like we, we both said before, that I, I'm more open to the far ends of extreme metal than yourself. So I wanted to select something for you that was that was going to really punch you, but not like take it too far over the top or become almost gimmickly heavy. And yes, I think, yeah, I think, I think that's I, fair to say. I think Turnstile are like a perfect example of that. Like they're not extreme metal in the slightest, but they play at such a pace that it's really punching. And if they weren't careful. It would just blur into noise, like some punk bands do. If you, depending on which punk band you're listening to, some of it just blurs into a, a really high BPM with some lyrics that you're trying to decipher that you can't quite make yeah. it. And the yeah. song, some, metal is very similar. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes the songs just sound like mush with a couple of decent hard riffs in. So I thought Turnstile were, were a perfect balance, as well as that. They've got a phenomenal guitarist which i'm sure we're gonna go into and they've got this punching punky um hard-lipped element to the way they structure their songs that i just thought you would really really find a match to and they're on roadrunner records as well uh, which usually is a statement in never itself. a bad thing in it, a statement in itself for a band but I'm going to give you the floor yeah. man uh, the album came out in 2018 it's called Time and Space by Turnstile I already fucking adore it what do you think? I really really like this, um, this band and this album great really really like this um, there isn't a song over 3 minutes 14 seconds on this album <laughs> class yeah and I've, I've got a lot of time for that um, 25 minutes and 15 seconds 13 songs in that amount of time is if songwriting um i just really appreciated um the depth of great rock music that i could hear in this album it was like a spectrum of punk rock and hard rock i heard we were sort of talking to each other in in between listening to these albums and i remember thinking oh there's a bit of food fighters a bit of queens of stone age and some of the lighter ones and then hearing more oh this is a bit of misfits this is a bit of um of rancid those sort of like punk bands and then you know, hearing other bits and bobs and hearing some, like, classic sort of knee guitar and thinking, oh, that sounds a bit like, you know, Thin Lizzy or ACDC or something like that, but, like, a little bit faster. Um, I really enjoyed it. I, I really, really enjoyed it. There were some absolutely terrific songs in here. Like, Lost Another Piece of My World is just a terrific collection of riffs, as is I Don't Want to Be Blind. Um, uh, the Real Thing, The Big Smile and Generator is a top three album. I just think it's terrific. I, I, I enjoyed having a song that's a minute and 56 seconds at the start and the last 15 seconds of which are, are lift music. And it's just sort of completely juxtaposing that. I like there's a sense of humour, there's a witticism to the band. I like the, the heaviness, but also the fact that it felt both sparse and full. At the same time, it felt like I could tell that there was like maybe four instruments maximum, but it still filled the room. And and really sort of dominated my my eardrums in the same sort of way. I thought it was just a terrific album. No fat, no filler. Um, this is actually the album that would have suited the father of all advertisement. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is actually what Green Day thought they were writing. Um, <laughs> but it, 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 but at least at least we're getting it instead, sort of thing. So that that's quite nice. But I thought this was just an absolutely terrific album. I really really enjoyed it. Um, I still disagree with you on your categorization of their sound, which might be a discussion for another day. Um, but overall, I think they're a terrific band. And uh, like I said, um, quite a nice spectrum of, of punk rock and hard rock music. 
um, that I think came across really nicely here. Really, really solid, great album. This is good driving music as well. As well, I think that this is all good gym music or something where you're doing an activity. Um, I just think, yeah, it was a really good choice. I can completely understand why you liked it so much. I'm not going to let you get away with that statement that you made about the way I categorise it, so we're going to talk about it now. <laughs> um, oh, God. Basically, for this... I can't so... believe you're going to be so egregiously wrong with an audience. I mean, it's bad <laughs> enough when you're wrong in front of me. Basically, if people listen at home, I've said to Sam before that I think this band are like hardcore punk Pantera, which Sam... We, we like just cuts me off every single time that I make the claim he's like no they don't shut up uh, you know, and we, and we laugh about it I don't it. mean in this version of the conversation I don't like it do you know for the, all, all the time I've known you the nastiest you ever are is when we talk about this but like <laughs> so what I mean is so I, I <laughs> to give a bit more detail, I don't think they sound like Pantera, but there are definitely moments when the guitarist B. Ray is pulling some dime bag slick stuff, man. I mean, mate, the nope. the opening riff to Generator, I just don't see how you couldn't slide that into any Pantera song ever. I just think the tonality, the the, the way the rhythm section bounces off each other. I'm not saying the band sound like Pantera because Pantera groove metal band and Turnstile are a hardcore punk band. So no, they don't sound the same. Five Minutes Alone by Pantera sounds absolutely nothing like any Turnstile song. But there are moments and there are riffs that B. Rady pulls off that I am convinced that you could just slide into any Pantera song. And I'm going to do an experiment. I'm going to cut together some edits of riffs that are both dime bags <laughs> oh and be radies and I'm gonna play them to you. I'm gonna I'm gonna get you to say which band thinks done that you think. I do demand to be them. sober during this experiment. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> but you know what? We might do it at like the end of the, the album of the year special, just as like a nice little treat at the end. Because oh, right. because mate, I I genuinely don't think that you'd get many right. Because I wouldn't pick Pantera riffs that you would know one hundred percent off by heart. Like I I'm wouldn't offended. I, I wouldn't choose riffs from like Domination. You know, I, I'd pick like offshoot Pantera riffs. And I because mate, the, some of them they just sound so similar and it just bemuses me how you don't think there's any similarity whatsoever because I do there isn't <laughs> I, I, I don't know what to say like it's not, it's, <laughs> there isn't there is nothing else to say <laughs> I don't I don't understand where you're coming from in the sense that I, I, I get that you the thing is is I get the impression that even you are starting to teeter out from your own opinion because there are caveats you offered in the first half of that was like I'm not trying to say that they are Pantera. I'm not trying to say that they sound like Pantera. I'm not trying to say that they 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 could be a groove metal band. But if you isolate this one riff and play it next to this one other particular riff, they might be able to feed in each other. If you also squint and tilt your head 90 degrees to the left and put your finger in your right eardrum and and like do you know what I mean? Like it, it just seems like I have to go through a lot to agree with you. That being said, I think that the guitar sound is just so completely different that um it, it boils down to essentially you saying to me don't you think that they're both like use chords and stuff <laughs> oh fuck you off know? you pretentious prick <laughs> <laughs> it just feels like you're just stripping so much away from it where i'm like no it's different because of those things and <laughs> <laughs> that's the reason that otherwise it's just you know they're both like you know play the guitar and it <laughs> and it's and that's the way that it feels at the moment i just 
I just don't see it. I don't well, I don't I don't hear it. One is a punk rock band and the other's Pantera. Don't bands don't sound like Pantera, Pantera sound like Pantera. Oh no, and, that and I'm, not it, saying, it, I'm not saying I'm not saying the same like them. If you turn to me and say, but the thing is, like, if you turn to me and say, oh, down sound like Pantera, I'd be like, yeah. Alice in Chains sound a bit like Pantera. I'd be like, yeah. These sound like Foo Fighters. No. In comparison. But, no, but I mean? what I'm talking about riffs from B Rider. Yeah, which which obviously forms. Yeah, I, I, so am I. Because <laughs> the, the riffs from. <laughs> The riffs that he's playing in the band don't sound like Pantera riffs. I they're can't believe bluesy, this. Enough. Mate, Pantera I've got to do some experiments. Hard rock riffs, right? And then other than that, they write thrash. If you said if you said Power Trip sound like Pantera, I'd be like, yeah, I get it. Because I do a bit. This is this is a bit of a leap and you've painted yourself into a corner now where you can't back away from it and I just think they are too different because it's just different it's it's chalk and cheese for me mate i'm gonna have to conduct an experiment (laughs) because me and our friend very good friend kelso are like convinced that 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 there are elements that do sound like pantera and you're like no there isn't you two are wankers fuck off (laughs) so i'm gonna have to conduct an experiment to see where people land on this man Um, about his version of this He's not. He's not too. That's what I'm gonna go with. I'm gonna. I'm. I'm gonna go back to why I love the album and just skirt away from this. You should. You should. Absolutely. Fucking. I'm gonna deck you. Um, <laughs> Generator. The song on this is one of my all favorite. It's got one of my all favorite time signature changes in of recent memory. I love the way the song goes from like punk rock to like hard rock. Um, when the drums start, dun 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 dun, 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 dun and the chorus comes back in, so sick. Um, and the the solos and rhythmic patterns here create like an atmosphere where people either want to pit or they want to dance. It's so sick, and I saw them live at Two Thousand Trees, and it gave literally the crowd was what I just described. People were either pitting. Or like dancing to the riffs, and it's as furious as it is eloquent. And there are just really not many albums of recent memory that sound anything like this. They're they're really on an island on their own, and I cannot wait for whatever comes next from Turnstile because I'm so so on board with them. I think they're absurd. They're brilliantly talented. They're unique, and they've got this really beating heart that runs through the way the structure they caught the songs. It's just 25 minutes, kicks you in the gut, but doesn't go too far over the top. Doesn't extenuate too far, doesn't extend, sorry, too many of the songs. No song over three and a half minutes. It comes, it throws itself in your face, it leaves abruptly. Absolutely sick album. Yeah, terrific. We're going to move on to the final segment of the show, apart from, obviously, my interview with Luke Priestley, which is going to follow this. You selected for me an album by Counting Crows, August and Everything After. So I explained why I chose Turnstile for you. You can explain now why you chose Counting Crows for me. Um, I thought that it it was the right time in your life to hear it. And by that, I mean that music needs to capture you at a certain point. I'm sure you agree that there were some songs that you didn't like when you were 13, but you love when you're 17. 
there's some songs that you love when you're 17 that you don't like as much when you're 21 and vi- and, and, and as it goes on when you get older you, you you start to appreciate different things in the same way that your palate changes and and the things that you see your eyesight changes just your development as a human being affects the things that you enjoy and Chris, as I thought, I thought you were starting to obviously see you starting to get into sort of the men's singers and bands like that. American singer songwriters were were starting to to really have an impact on you musically, and, and I thought this was a perfect album for you to hear at this time, um, because simply put, I think this is one of the most astonishing albums I've ever heard. I think this is one of the most heartfelt and brilliantly written albums I've ever heard. Uh, I think that some of the vocals and lyrics and the stories here are among some of the most emotive and heart-wrenching things I've ever heard in my life. And I thought that if I'd showed um, you two years ago, it might not have had the same sort of impact. Whereas now, I think you're starting to open up a little bit um, to that, that sort of music. And I think that allows you to really immerse yourself into something like this. And I, and I, I just thought it was the right time. When I, heard, when I heard this album, I was... Properly, I was about 18 and it was just I was like leaving home and going through a lot of stuff and it just it really just meshed with what I was um what I was thinking at the time and I found myself again like we was talking about the music is really immersing myself in the music and I think it just has some of the greatest lyrics and stories and melodies and has a beautifully reassuringly warm feeling that just never escapes me um, when whenever I listen to this album I think Anna Begins is one is, is my fourth favourite song of all time. I think this is one of my five favourite albums ever. It just it's just hit me in an emotional way, in the same way that the Menzingers Hello Exile hit you when you spoke about that. And I thought that given that that was where your tastes were starting to veer towards, I thought this would be a nice compliment to that. And I'm hoping that I was right. You couldn't have been more spot on. I think this is a tremendous, tremendous piece of songwriting throughout the album. You were absolutely to a T spot on when you said it's important to find music at the right time. And one of my notes that I've put about this album is, similar to the Menzingers, I'm finding this band at the perfect time. If you played this to me like three years ago, I'd be, I'd just be like, oh, nah, man, put metalcore on, I just want some breakdowns. Yeah. And... My yeah. spectrum, my spectrum has widened since then, as you've just attested to. And this American storytelling songwriting has really started to connect with me. And this album, I have, I will become obsessed with this in the sense of I want to find out what all of this is about. I want to do research and listen to interviews and read opinion pieces on what this album's about and what it's done for certain people. I mean, this album, I was just doing a, a mild bit of research before we came on. It sold over 7 million records. You yeah, know, it was one of the this, defining albums of the 90s, yeah. This this isn't like an obscure album that you stumbled across. No. This is an album no. that, this is an album that is, is like multi-multi-platinum in several countries as well. Yeah, came out in like what ninety three, the latter stages of ninety three. Yeah, can you believe it doesn't sound like it's twenty seven years old either? Oh my, oh my god, mate, Th- this is. It's going to be released te- yesterday. This stood, this has stood the test of time, phenomenally well. I cannot believe this album is twenty seven years old. <laughs> I can't believe this album is twenty seven years old. Like it is absurd. 
this album, as you've just attested to, literally could have been released this week, and I wouldn't have batted an eyelid. If you'd have told me this album came out in 2019, it, uh, uh, but didn't let me do any research, I wouldn't have asked any questions. Yeah, it's, timeless. And to, to write timeless music, I mean, writing music is difficult anyway. Writing great music is incredibly difficult. Writing timeless music is like borderline impossible because the music industry goes through so many spats and spit and starts and finishes that it's impo- almost impossible to write something that will sound as fresh in 30 years as it does in this present day. And there's very, very, very few bands and even fewer albums that are able to do that. And I feel like literally this entire album, not just a couple of songs from this album, but this entire album could be played to the next generation in 25, 30 years. And I feel like they would still fall head over heels for this album. This is something else. Uh, Adam Duritz, uh, the vocalist, he's yes. got an, he's got an astonishingly diverse voice, hasn't he? Uh, it's the way that he he doesn't sing things normal. He doesn't sing songs normally, does he? There's the way that he sings. It's half half spoken word. Yeah, with it's like occasional a... melodies in between. It's and the, the the range of him whispering and almost like he's crying and shaking and. It, you do feel like he's telling you stories while a band plays in the background. There's like an ache in his voice that yeah. is just so capturing, spellbinding. Yes. And I use that word when we talk about sleep token, spellbinding. And I, I, I do apply the same terminology here because this really just grabbed me. I, I was at yours last night just chilling, playing Mario Kart, watching some films. And on my way home, I chucked this album back on and... I was just so fully immersed. It just, I, I messaged you a message. I was like, man, I'm in my feelings here listening to this. Like, yeah. it, it just really captured me. Um, there's a, a lyric in this. Um, it's it, during uh, Mr. Jones, believe in me because I don't believe in anything. And then it's got that clean guitar underneath. Yeah. It's my, fa- my favourite moment on the album. It is so genius. It, something so simplistic as... A lyric such as that with a little clean guitar underneath, but the way it's performed, put together, uh, what proceeds and what follows, just all melds into this just genius, genius songwriting. And there's a hook on the final song of the album, "Murder of One," that chorus just beautiful. And obviously that that is featured on Scrubs, which is my probably my favourite TV show of all time. So again, another connection that I've just felt to this record. It, you know, it's difficult to know where to begin here. Like. There's storytelling, and then there's this. I, I yeah. wanna, I wanna dig my nails in here and just find out everything like, about this in, band. I'm talking about the girl around here that wants to find a boy that looks like Elvis, and her walls are crumbling apart, and all this sort of stuff. And go on, Mister Take Your Shot, and then being in a relationship with Anna begins, where it's um, every every word is nonsense, but I understand. She sneezes, and once again, I believe it's love. And it's like being confused in a relationship, and every time something goes well, you you you're fully in, and then you know you want to you want to wrestle her down and put her on a photo album because you don't think it's going to last very long. It's just gorgeous. I felt this is one of the most relatable albums I've ever had to in my, in my life. Honestly, yeah. the the moment you hear the opening notes of this, it's that little that like sort of buzz, the the sort of build up and that beautiful riff at the start of Round Here. Yeah. And then he just starts, and I'm, I'm in. I, I'm, I'm immediately captivated. 
I'm so glad that you are as well. I, you know, you listen to Omaha, which is my favourite song on the album. It's got that, like, Irish folk backdrop. Which I, yeah. found, which I found really interesting. And I looked into them, and they're not Irish at all. <laughs> like, no. but, but that fits so perfectly into the song. Again, I love the chorus on it, just the, and just like the, the just acoustics of the song, the technicality of how it's been structured, and the lyrics, and yeah. oh, mate, it's just so genius. And yeah, I, I, listen, I listen to Sullivan Street, and you, I get a genuine lump in my throat. The, the way yeah. that, that, the way that, the uh, Adam, the vocalist, just bellows out that chorus. It's just, oh my god, this album is absolutely astonishing. Uh, the, yeah. the, uh, my final note that I left on this was just, this is genius. As sim- simple as that. I, I completely understand. I get it. This is fucking yeah. great. Raining in, raining in Baltimore when he's like, I need a phone call. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, oh, oh, no. You know what I mean? I need a raincoat. I need a big top. And he just doesn't know what to do with himself, and it's, uh, it's, it is just gorgeous. It is gorgeous. He's the most compelling vocalist. They did a, a 20th anniversary show where they played the album in full, and you need to see that now that you love the album. Yeah, I do. I need to. I it's, it's, it's wonderful. So we'll, we'll 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 do that at some point. Mate, I could have gone on longer, but. Uh... We'll decide not to, because we've got a 40-odd minute interview to put in with uh, Luke Priestley, owner of Stereo Brown Records, and that's coming up next. That's, so, that's a great get, man. It's glad we've got that. So, thank you for listening to this episode of the Noise Podcast. We really appreciate everyone listening yet again. Vote for us in the Cardiff Music Awards. We are going to be back in two weeks' time, but don't go anywhere. My interview with Luke Parisi from Stereo Brain Records follows shortly after this. We go into details on how the record label started, how he got into owning a shop, hoarding these records, what got him into music. It's a really great Chris Meet, so I hope you all pay attention and listen to and enjoy that one. Thanks for listening to this episode. We will be back in two weeks. We love you. Bye. So I'm now joined by Luke Priestley from Stereo Brain Records. Mate, thanks for being on the Noise Podcast. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Excited to chat. Mate, I can't believe... Like, it's usually me that chases people to do stuff, and I'm so sorry that I kept you waiting <laughs> as long as I have for this, because you're actually someone that I've wanted to speak to for ages. But as I was just saying to you before we came on air, I'll be, I was waiting for the stars to align. So, mate, thank you very much for your patience. Oh, there's no problem, man. Excited to chat, excited to talk music. Just, yeah. <laughs> so, like, uh, for people who aren't aware, um, Luke... Uh, was one of the founding members of Stereo Brain Records all the way back in 2015, but we're not we're not going to start there. I want to get a whole idea of uh, what Luke Pre what Luke I'm pretty sure Luke Priestley is a human. Who Luke Priestley is, uh, and <laughs> how you got into music so much that you are now all of a sudden part of this record label. So I'm going to start this interview off generally how I start most Chris Meets interviews off. Um, when do you remember? getting into music in a sense of it being more than just something that was on in the background what was your first experience when you were like oh as it turns out music is massively important to me i think i think i got like two times really like because when i my first sort of experience with music was like stuff like busted yeah man and, and mcfly and seeing mcfly when i was like eight was was like uh oh this is really cool but sort of when i really got into music was like about 12 years old discovering frightened rabbit uh midnight organ fight that album was really like my 
oh, I really, really like music now. This is what I love sort of thing. When you were eight years old and you were at that McFly show, was this like, did because this the same kind of thing happened to me a little bit. Did music seem like, oh, like this massive thing that I can't believe anything could be this popular? Like when you're standing there and there's like 20,000 screaming people at these four guys on stage kind of thing. Yeah, like, it's it's really weird for me because I, I sort of grew up with my dad being massively involved in the music scene. So I had like this, my first gig being McFly and thinking like this was like the massivest thing in the world. But then also my dad doing it for a living and I was like, it, it was a very strange sort of introduction to music for me because I sort of, you get both sides. You get like the massive stuff and I'm like, ah, oh, this can be really cool. And then like seeing my dad do it every day, I was like, this is even cooler that someone can do this every day. You know what I mean? So when I went to my dad and I was like, dad, I really love Busted. He was like, great. I'm sure they're really good. Because my, my dad was like Led Zeppelin, Motorhead. You know? uh, so, I, you know, he's... I was, like, 10 years old when I got into... Busted was, like, one of the first bands that I really enjoyed. Because I was 10 years old, man. Like, I'm pretty sure, like, most people our age, when they were 10, they were into Busted and McFly, and if not, they're lying. Um, so, you know, <laughs> he was, like... He gave me, like, the disappointed smile, like, I'm glad you're into music. Wish it was something better. You know, uh, was your dad like that with you? I don't really remember. It was more, like... It was more of as I grew up and sort of became progressively more emo. I think he got more and more disappointed. It wasn't like, like there was a point where we, we talked about music loads and I got really into like Radiohead and like he, he's a big fan of like a lot of the, he's a big fan of lots of things, but he does really like his sort of 90s indie stuff um, and like his 70s punk and like the clash and things and there was a point in my life where I was discovering all these artists and he was like this is amazing and then I was like oh but I want this but, it, but I want it to come out like this year and that's when we started like him being like oh I don't know I don't know if this is uh is this is acceptable <laughs> I'm pretty sure like with Ra- if you can get into Radiohead I think you can probably get into any band in existence yeah, yeah. like they're like as far as in terms of like dexterity and and like really having to listen to get it, I think if you can get into Radiohead, you can get into anyone. Yeah, I think when I was like it was like when I was ten and eleven, I was my dad like was taking me through a CD collection, and I picked out definitely maybe by Oasis, sick, and um, the Bends by Radiohead, and I listened to those. And that, that was really, that was like sort of my, my sort of start of my journey into really liking music, really. Because I was like, oh, this stuff's really cool. Like, my, it's weird. <laughs> my first exposure to Radiohead was during the film Vanilla Sky with Tom oh, Cruise. Yeah. Um, and obviously one of the most complicated films that I've ever watched, I think. And I remember it was my mate's brother who showed me the film. And I was like man, this film's hard to get. And he was like, mate, you should listen to Radiohead, the band that did the song. (laughs) If you think this is difficult to get, you're not going to be anywhere near Radiohead. Um, (laughs) So, like, um, your dad, was he, like, um, a a musician, performer? Is that what you were getting at earlier? um, My dad's a venue owner. Oh, right, okay. Still is. So, I won't won't name and shame his uh, his venue, but... (laughs) 
Um, so was it like the kind of thing where you were getting like taken to these shows when you were young because your dad just wanted to expose you to the industry or were you like dad I want to come with you to the shows I want to see what it's like all that kind of stuff so like McFly was definitely like me being like well I was 8 years old right and I had a girlfriend and I was like dad (laughs) I want to take my girlfriend on a date can you get me gig tickets to McFly and he got me gig tickets to McFly what a guy I know, what a legend. I, I had to be chaperoned by my aunt, though. I was eight, obviously. So. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and then, like, there was a couple... I went to go see The Feeling, if you remember The Feeling. I remember The Feeling, yes. They were, I saw them a few times. Um, and then, sort of, it wasn't until maybe 2011 or 12 where I actually started being, like, really asking my dad to take me to gigs. Um, at his venue as well. Um, I went to go see Tribes in like 2012. That was one of definitely one of the first like proper gigs I would say, rather than going to see like a popular band, you know. Um, so but yeah, he dragged me along to a few things. He dragged me along to a few things, but like I know it's maybe a bit of both really. So you're like. 11 and 12 and that's where like you've you've really started to get in mcfly was like one of your first like boundary crosses but then once you in high school that's like when you really dive in um what was the band that you remember being like i want to hear all their albums i want to hear every single they've done i want to hear the demos the, the the eps that got lost somewhere in the ether was there a band that you were like i want to hear everything they've ever recorded ever they're amazing um like i guess my first one of those properly was feeder oh right okay interesting um because i started my dad had the cd for the singles album with all just all their singles on and i just listened to it non-stop for ages and then just and then they had a new album out in like 2008 so i would have been 12 and then yeah went to go see all that stuff and got really into feeder and then really into i don't know i think all those sort of obsessions have grown with time with me like i'll start off listening to one album loads and loads and loads and then some and then i'll just hear a song of their other album and it'll suddenly make sense you know i don't know i can't really think of a time where i suddenly got obsessed now that it, like, it's that's actually quite similar for me as well like i've said on the podcast several times that when i was in like secondary school Music wasn't really a thing for me. Like, yeah. I was more bothered about just, like, trying really hard to just fit in just somewhere. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. So, so music was kind of, like, secondary. I was really into games. I was really into professional wrestling. Um, but, like, <laughs> but, so you can see why I had trouble fitting in. Um, so, but, like, music just, like, I didn't, like, it was, I guess it existed. And I was like, oh, yeah, oh, this is cool. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. But, like... There was there was nothing that really grabbed me, so I completely get that it wasn't until I um, was right at the end of sixth form and then at the very start of uni till I was like, oh my god, music's the best thing that's ever been created. Really? Yeah, man. So I, I was like quite a light bloomer, man. Yeah, I was gonna say that's like for me, it was really like I really loved music. I think the point, one of the points where like I really like I knew I was like properly into music was. I went to South Sea Festival in like 2012 and just saw like so many. I was like, I saw like Delta Sleep and Axes and Anamanaguchi in like a tiny little venue. And I was just like, this is awesome. And I want to like find out so much more. Like, 
so that would have been yeah I was still pretty pretty young 16 at that point so I don't know yeah but I, before that I did really obsess over feeder and a load of other bands so I've just I've just kind of been surrounded by it for so long I forget where it started what did you study at uni I did maths at uni well, man, okay, so this is going to be really fascinating. Once we get to Stereo Brain Records, um, this is going to be fascinating because, like, maths... I fully expect you to say something like journalism, uh, music tech, or something like that. I um, get that. I get that a lot. And then, yeah, I get it all the time because I, I DJ in a rock club in Cardiff and I'll get, I'll start have a conversation out with someone in the smoking area and they'll be like, oh, where'd you, what'd you do at uni? And I'll be like, maths and that, but you're the DJ. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, like, did you go all the way? Did you graduate, or did you uh, pack it in within, within a year or so? I like packed it in in the last year. It was one of those things where things were really starting to take off with DJing and Stereo Brain and kind of doing all my other stuff. That like it was, I got to a point where I was like, well, I kind of have to choose one or the other. Someone told me before that like, because they actually did a, a, a maths degree, they were like. You, you can't have a life if you want to do a maths degree. It's like, you, you, like the, it can't be the case of the standard university life and do well at your maths degree. Do you know what I mean? I well, I do because that's what I experienced. But then I say that my housemate, who is also my business partner in Stereo Brain, um, we were on the same degree course, and he got a degree. So. Like, take from that what you will. <laughs> hey, I'm not here to criticise, man. Uh, there's, there's nothing to say. He was better at maths than you. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, man, let's get into it. Um, round about the, from the research that I've done, around about 2015, Stereo Brain was founded slash launched. Yeah, so I was in, like... Um, so started it off as, like, a music blog, right? So I was in my last year at college. I'd just been... Um, diagnosed with bipolar disorder um and i was looking at ways to sort of creatively like cope with that and my girlfriend at the time was like maybe you should try a blog maybe that'll that'll help so i started like i was like well i love music so i'll just start writing about music and it just kind of like so i did that and then i moved to uni for like six months later and was like well i may as well just try and make it work here and started getting in touch with venues and Every, and bands and stuff and doing little bits here and there really when you look back was was that, that almost the easy part when you're just like a you know still a teenager and you're just writing thoughts on the internet before it becomes this now now it's like a company so now it's now it's hard work now whereas oh. when you when you were a teenager like the only expectations that you had were the ones that you set for yourself was that almost the easy part back then well, I still sort of, for me, I sort of, everything I do now is still expectations that I set for myself. I, you know, I'm quite lucky that it is kind of my own thing and like I work for myself. So I don't, I, I'm quite, I don't think I've ever lost that really, which is quite, quite nice. I think because, but, but it comes from like the fact that it started as a blog and then we did the gigs and then we did a festival and, and it's, and then we did the record label and it's kind of like, it's always been evolving, so it's kind of it's every year is something new and doing something different. When you were just putting this blog together, was it just you, uh, or did you have a, a few people help writers helping you out, or was it solely uh, a Luke Priestley uh, venture? 
yeah, it was just it was just me for a little bit. Um, I think, as you're saying that, I think the second review I ever did, I co-wrote with my girlfriend that encouraged me to start the blog. Um, and then I think one of my one of my friends has done another one for me, but pretty much everything else has been me. Um, I just like writing opinions about music. Don't know I mean, if you've seen my Twitter. <laughs> yes, I have actually. Um... <laughs> I mean, mate, I mean, that is incredibly fascinating because, you know, Noise started relatively similar. Um, my The website owner and my good friend Jack Holloway, just in his bedroom at university kind of thing, oh, I'll do a blog and, you know, I'll, just, I'll put up what I think about music and then, you know, five years later we've got this team of writers and a podcast on the YouTube channel and that kind of stuff. But, like, to think that everything that's become was mostly, you know, done by yourself. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't speak for Jack on many things, but I'll speak for him on this one. If if Noise was still a solo adventure, it would have been packed in in 2017. Like, and I'm sure Jack would agree with that. So, mate, how were you managing this as well as uh, grow up into adulthood, um, university, um, to try, to ba- try to have an actual life as well? How does that work? Um, most of the times, not very well. <laughs> I'll be honest. I did expect you to say that. I'm going to be honest. Um, I saw that coming. You know, like, but I think for me, it's it's like when I was sort of growing up at school and at college, I always had this like, I was like, oh, I just want to like, how cool would it be to own a record label? How how like how much do I want that? And then I kind of started this blog, and I realised I really want this, um, and everything else since then it's kind of been like focused on this like goal to achieve and like i don't know it's it's i think i find it alarmingly easy almost to just forget about everything else in the world and just focus on this stereo brain stuff because it because it is just me at, well it's me and my business partner but i i do a lot of the sort of more creative side of it and the more sort of like hands-on side because he has a full-time job um and it's just yeah i don't know i just find it so easy to get lost in so so easy <laughs> i'm almost jealous in a way because like i say through reading on the website and that kind of thing before we came on uh, i could see that when you were at uni you started promoting live music through the university society which yeah. was i remember quite vividly actually when because I, I, I did journalism at university when I did un- when I did journalism at university, um, for the first two years, I was trying. I wanted to get into sports journalism and not music. I, uh, music was becoming massive to me, but it hadn't clicked that actually it's music journalism that I want to do. And I remember my lecturer saying to me, "You need to put in the effort of being a journalist now." Like, you need to be a journalist now. Don't don't be like, oh, I'll graduate and then I'll start writing. He's like, do it now. Like, uh, contact sites, those kind of thing. Write for yourself. Da, 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 da. And I didn't... I kind of went fit, half-hearted on it because I wasn't very good at the time. Um, but for yourself, like, mate, you grab the ball by the horns and you, like, made this opportunity for yourself. Were you, like, just standing in, like... I don't know, like the student area, like in the library, being like, "Hey, is there any bands about? I'll, I'll, I'll put a, a shout for you." Was that how, how that well, works? Well, so um, at Cardiff Uni, there's an alternative music society which I joined in my first year, um, and like everything they did was going out and drinking at alternative nightclubs, 
and that's fine. But I, I sort of like, and then I got voted in as president for my second year. And I was like, I want to do something like really different and like actually engage with the alternative music scene. And I was like, well, if I put on a gig, if I put on a gig for everyone to go to, if I go say, book some bands that I think are really good, if I get everyone from the society turned down and give them cheap, cheap or everyone from the society cheap tickets, like everybody wins because, you know, we all get a nice night out. Everyone gets to find some new music and the bands have a room to play for. And that was like my whole idea behind it. That's why I did it, really. I was like, this is a win-win for sort of everyone involved. Like, <laughs> and it was kind of like, yeah, it was, uh, it was then that just sort of motivated me more because I, I, I'm being a DJ. I just like seeing rooms full of happy people. Like, <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So it's just like, yeah, I was like, oh, okay, I did this and everyone came and everyone had a good time. And that was like my main motivation for doing it, really. It was never, like the gigs actually were never really going to be part of Stereo Brain. And then it just sort of happened. <laughs> so we'll fast forward to graduation. Yes. Um, you had dropped out in your third year, but uh, Callum, your business party, partner, sorry, you said carried it through. Yeah. Um, so come 2017, that's when like you make the, you make it a company, right? Like it's a limited company in around about the mid part of 2017, if I remember yes. correctly. So we, so basically what happened was in July of 2017, uh, me and Cal moved in together um, for, for uni and moved into a house together with some mates. Um, and we both stayed over the summer and spent a lot of time hanging out. And I, I'd been putting on gigs for a year and he was like, I really want to get involved. I really want to sort of like do this. And I was like, look, I, I want to put on a festival. Let's put on a festival. So we booked a slot for May 2018 and then we were like, right, we need to make this like a company and make it all official so that we can actually like make money off this and give it a real go. Um, so yeah, we did it and we like made the company limited in like August 2017, I think. And then our first gig, um, as a business was Sir at Giddy Hugh. And I'm, I'm pretty sure Noise have big, well, I, I've seen a lot of love for Sir around, let's yeah. say. We, we we got we got a few writers that are, are right on the Sir Street, man. Uh, I, I've got I, I know a couple of uh, the writers that are massive on on Sir. Do you remember like the conversations that were had just as you go into a limited company? Now it's like these are now business conversations as opposed to hey mate, should you think this would be a good idea for the site? Oh, yeah, but I think because we're, we're we're both really good mates and we still live together, it still is kind of like we'll be hanging out at the evening. About, Do you think this is a good idea? And that's kind of like how everything comes about now still. It still feels very natural and very not business-like. Um, let's, yeah. let's, <laughs> let, let, let's talk about the actual process for yourself in terms of uh, booking a show for an artist. Um, I saw that you had worked with uh, Conjurer and Nervous, two bands that I'm quite big on. Let's talk about the process of how that works. Like, are you sitting in your room with your mate and you're like, Conjurer sick, aren't they? Uh, and they're a band that uh, they're, they're just really starting up, so they are gettable. 
Uh, what? How does that look? Do you contact their PR? Do you contact the room first? What, what's your process there? So it's a bit, get a bit of both really. So um, some bands will seek out like um, Conjurer. We definitely sought out to book that. Um, they actually Conjurer is a funny one. It's completely different to all the others because they tweeted, "We want to book a tour. Who would want us?" Um, and I just replied to the tweet, being like, "Yeah, do you want to come to Cardiff? Here's my email." Um, and that's how we booked Kundra for that one. But most of the others is either we're we'll we'll be I'll be finding bands that I really like and I'll be like, that's achievable and I'll I'll put myself to that. Um but yeah, and then like but then you get others come around because I've done loads of work with Big Scary Monsters, um and I currently work for Alcopop, so I still get I you know, you get some sent through because they're like, Oh, do you want this one? or just bands we've worked with before, I think. It's just yeah, it's kind of a bit of a mix of everything. It's not that's not very helpful to say to anyone that's like wanting to become a promoter, <laughs> but it's kind of luck of the draw, really, and who you have conversations with. Um, I, I mean, when I started out, I was emailing every person under the sun, like just being like, "Can we book you? Can we book you? Can we book you?" And um, yeah, I think a few people found that quite annoying. But um, yeah, now we now we sort of wait for them to come to us, really, and try and stick to the big ones because we've got so much other stuff going on. But the best way to put on a show is just to grab some local bands and do like a cheap entry fun show. I think if you want to get into promoting, it's the best way to do it. How much of a fight has this been up to this point, Stereo Brand Records, for you personally? <sighs> a lot, to be fair. There's been a lot of a lot of like down points, really. Um, it's one of those things that I never really think about until someone asks me that question. Um, and I'm like, <laughs> sorry, dude. Oh, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. And I'm like, oh, no, that, 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 that was really tough. Um, the first power festival that we did, that was definitely probably the hardest time for us. Um, cause we spent like, we, we made the limited company and we, we spent an entire year planning this festival like oh, it was just so like neither of us had any experience booking a festival or organizing a festival or doing anything really getting stages in getting anything like it was an absolute nightmare i was so stressed the entire way through but the worst part for me was the next day because we threw on this big party basically and all it was basically just a big party and all of our mates came and it was a really lovely day and the next day I just woke up and was like, what do I do now? <laughs> like the girl after the wedding. Oh shit, it's over. That kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, it was like, welcome to the rest of your life. Like, um, yeah, it was actually, it was a really, really tough week because, um, yeah, I, I woke up and I just felt I had a very depressed week that week. Um, and then on the Wednesday, um, Scott Hutchinson from Frightened Rabbit, like my favourite band of all time, went missing. And that was like, yeah, that was probably the toughest, one of the toughest weeks of my life, that one. Um, but like, I always try and look at those experiences as they, like, I learned so much from that experience on how to like deal with those sort of feelings. And also like with planning a festival that I kind of look back, try and look back at those memories as a positive sort of experience rather than something to be like, oh, well, that was really hard. I remember previously myself and the other editors for noise were like hey we'll do a noise festival 
and we'll just contact like a louder like we'll see if we can put this together see if it's possible see if we can get a venue we'll contact fuel all that kind of thing and it wasn't until we actually got into the workings of it that we were like oh actually for a start this would cost a bomb uh, it's going to take a hell of a lot of legwork and it's incredibly difficult to actually piece everything together um how on earth did you have you pulled off power festival as as a just a young guy uh, who's Company's only been limited for, what, two and a half years? How on earth have you pulled this off? It, it really is astonishing. Well, like, yeah, the first one was just, like, blind luck, really. The second one was a lot more sort of methodically planned and organised, and we didn't... Like, the first what the first one, we were just like, right, let, we but we had false advertising headline, um, who which now is, like, oh, really cool, but back then they, yeah. they, they'd not really done much. Um, and then we had Junior book to headline the second stage, and about two months before it, they had to pull out because Mark Andrews had a wrestling thing in America. Yeah. Um, and then we just somehow stumbled across booking Dream State for it, which was just, like, ridiculous. Um, I don't know. I don't... I don't. It's one of those things that, like, if you set yourself realistic goals and you set a budget and you stick to that, it's, it's very doable if you, like... But it's 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 strange. It's a strange one because, like, I think back at it and I'm like, oh, I don't really know how he managed to do that. But like, yeah, I do. Th- I I do think the opportunity. I think anyone can do it if I can. You know what I mean? But yeah, it, we did lose a little bit of money. Um, well, I was going to mention this. I'm assuming that obviously when you're a young guy just starting up this new company, that you're doing it for the love as opposed to uh, the bank balance, which is always something that I massively respect. Yeah, I mean, like, unfortunately, anything you do in the music scene, from being in press all the way through to being in a band, like, it's just, a, it can be a real sinkhole at times for money. Um, but at the, and the other end of it is that you were, as soon as you get over that barrier of like losing money you start to make money and and actually make money quite well because it's just sort of the nature of the music industry i think uh, let's move forward a little bit because not only are you like this company now that's limited and does a festival but you've also signed bands as well uh, so you've got these five years and uh, night lives who uh these five years, I'm less familiar with, I'll be honest with you. But Nightlife, so many of the Noise lot are massive fans that I also <laughs> happen to be into them as well. Um, so let's talk about that. Like, what kind of conversations are happening between you and Callum there to be like, should we sign bands? Yeah, let's do that. Like, wh- how, again, talking about that process, how does it go from this uh, idea that you're talking about Callum with in your bedroom one day to, hey, Nightlife's have literally just signed for us. Let's talk yeah. about that. So literally on the, I've, I've this, I've had this very distinct memory, which is quite a funny story to talk about in this situation. The f- so like my first night at uni, I invited everyone from my course to my flat for a drink, and that's where I met Callum. And I very distinctly remember being rather drunk and being like, one day, I'm gonna own a record label. Um, so for me, that was always like the end goal for Stereo Brain. That's always what I wanted to do with it. Um, and it was just kind of waiting for that right opportunity. And we, so we gave these five years their like first headline show at the start of 20, 
2018? Was it that? 2018? Yeah, we gave him the first ever headline show at the start of 2018. And then they smashed it in 2018. They played Shepherd's Bush supporting uh, Flogging Molly at the end of the year. Um, and then they sort of turned around to us and were like, look, we know you want to do this label thing. Um, should we do it? Um, so it was kind of a bit of both because we we, we'd been mentioning it a few times to them. Like, if you want to put something out, we, we're keen to start. But I think we needed the right band to do it. And, like, it was really nice for us to be able to do it with these five years because we were so, like... You know, we were, they they loved us because we were sort of like the first local promoters to really take a chance on them, and we loved them because they like were awesome and sold out shows. So, like, yeah, it's just quite nice to be able to work with them still. I think um, Night Lives was a completely different one. Night Lives goes back to the uh, Cardiff Music Awards last year um, because we were up for best local promoter and best promoter, and they were up for best music video. And neither of us won. We ended up going out to team up and getting very drunk. Um, and <laughs> I just we're, we're dancing on the dance floor to something horrendous like Don Broco or something. <laughs> and um, Taff comes up to me and he's like, "Mate, you know you own that record label. Can we can we sign for you?" Bear in mind at this point we've not released any songs either. Like we're, we're gearing up to the first these five years release, and we're just like, "Yeah, all right then." <laughs> Amazing. Um, but. <laughs> It's kind of yeah, it's 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 very weird. I think that like for again with Night Lives and these five years, it's kind of like we were mates with them and started off that conversation as sort of rather than as a business conversation. Um, Bloom, who are our newest signings, though we we that was definitely sort of a more like calculated sort of business decision of we really like this band, let's get in touch with them and sit down and sign them. I'm not expecting you to discuss how your contracts are set out on the podcast, <laughs> um, but I am curious as to how, what kind of role you're trying to play in the bands that have signed for you in the sense of this is still a love project for you as opposed to you're already a millionaire that started up a record label because <laughs> you are a music industry expert. Uh, so what kind of role does Stereo, do you see Stereo Brain trying to play in the careers of Night Lives and Bloom in these five years? So I think... Um... I guess I think the important thing is to remember that, like, especially with, like, independent stuff and independent, like, we're some very small independent label and we're working with sort of small bands that, you know, have very different ambitions and very different needs. So I think, like, what's really nice about the work we do is we're very sort of personalised to the bands that we work with. So, like, with these five years, they came to us with this idea for an EP and how they wanted to market it. And so we did, so we printed the CDs and we, we went through that. Whereas like the experience of working with nightlives is incredibly different because they just have ridiculously stupid ideas in the best way, but they have like, they, they go, ah, so we've filmed a 10 minute music video. That's like James Bond, but a music video. And we want to do a, a movie premiere night for it. Can you help us? Like it's, it's very different for each of them, I think. I find it so, like, massively gratifying and, you know, a massive props to you that 
you did this uh, compilation CD that was from artists from Power Festival 2019, and you donated all the profits to Heads Above the Waves, which, if people don't know, is a uh, mental health charity. I believe it is based in Cardiff, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. based in Cardiff. Um, yeah, you know, uh, Google that, and if you've got anything to give to them, please do. Um, and, you know, the fact that you donated all proceeds to that, or profits, to a charity when you are, you know, a startup record label, which, in all honesty, is probably trying to fight for every piece of money it can get because you're startup, you're independent. Uh, that that is uh, an unbelievably uh, amazing thing for you to for you to do there. So uh, massive props to you for that. Um, but also coming off the back of that, a, a question for you was. Was that easier to mark? Was that easier or more difficult to market as a as a CD? We we weirdly we've actually like out of all the releases we've done, that's probably the one we've sold the least of. Right. Okay. Um, I don't really know why. Um, it's very weird. Um, but I think like we we sold quite a few on the day at the festival. Um, and we made like a decent we've made a decent amount of money for heads with it, which is really nice. But yeah, I don't know. We didn't sell as many as I thought we would, but um, I've still got quite a few sat in my room. So if anybody would like one, please get in touch. They are seven pounds, and all the money goes to a mental health charity. So yeah. <laughs> Speaking about Serial Brain Records now, uh, February twenty twenty. What's what's the hardest thing about the the record label now? Because I'm I'm assuming if it was twenty eighteen, I was having this conversation with you you'd say something completely different as to what you'd say now. So what's the biggest challenge owning the record label independent for you right now? Oh, um, try not to spend all my money. I think, <laughs> you know, what, mate? Um, that's the best thing you could have possibly said. That's so I, I, uh, there's so many bands that I love and there's so many bands that I want to be like, here, have 2000 pounds. Let's make a vinyl and do amazing things. And, I don't have two thousand pounds. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. like it's very, um, yeah, it's really strange actually. I just, yeah, I, uh, I can't. Yeah. Can, can I ask if Cerebrain Records is and your DJing is your only um, like um, financial venture, or do you have like a full time job as well? No. So I literally so. So Stereo Brain is obviously the record label, but we also run now, well, as of next week, we'll be running three nights at Metro's and sort of it all goes into the same part and then different bits take different parts from it. Um, but it's all under the same company. And I live off that at the moment. Right. Okay. So Stereo Brain Records is like, quote unquote, your life, which works, you know, it's got its pros and its cons. It's yeah. your life, so you will, you won't slack on it because it's your life. But, but on it, the it, other hand, it's your life. <laughs> so yeah, if it, things aren't going well, it's your life that it's affecting. It's in. It, I'll tell you what. It's very interesting with when your bedroom is your office. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. Because <laughs> I my my I'm, I'm sat in my bedroom right now. I'm talking to you, and it's just yeah, there's just vinyl everywhere. Um, I've just started a vinyl collection, so I am jealous. Oh, I've got I've got my vinyl collection, but then I also have about hundred odd like um, nightlife vinyl just sat around and <laughs> some some leftover stock from the shop and stuff like that. Like it's just yeah. <laughs> it's Again, a bit... 
you've you've led me on to the next part. Um, a Stereobrand record store. Am I? I mean, how does that work? I mean, it's I've looked on the website and I was like, man, they sell all kinds of things on here. This is awesome. Hey, do you like speak to distributors and like set up a deal to get your stock in or? Yeah, so actually, as of um, last week, we've actually shut the actual physical record store right. that we had um, because I don't have time to run it, unfortunately, because I've just suddenly got mad busy. Um, but these are the sort of things you just got to come and go and like adapt to. Um, but we're keeping the online store up, and then that all works with... Um, so some of the stuff like uh, Big Scary Monsters and Specialist Subject and Alcopop, um because we're all we're good friends so we sort of they sort us out um and I, we go directly through them but then some of the other stuff the bigger stuff we'll get through distributors um but it all kind of like yeah I, I the thing is with the record store as well is like and all the records that i get in to put on the online store it's still very us and very on brand and very me because like I don't really get much in that I don't like because I'm like if someone asked me about this record could I sell it to them and if I can't should I have it in the shop I see yeah I see what you mean so it's like yeah is there any point me having uh, a Venga Boys album in here I've no, been sent I can stuff. Tell you that. Yeah, <laughs> I've been sent stuff for for Venga Boys re-releases, and I was like, "Is there any point in me having this here? Because other people are going to come here, going to want it, and other people are going to come here. Am I going to be able to talk to someone for like half an hour about how great this album is and why they should buy it?" Um. So yeah, yeah pretty much any album that's in the shop, if, if you came and talked to me about that album, I could probably convince you to buy it. I hope. <laughs> Hey, dude, if you can convince me to buy a Venga Boys album, then I will give you double whatever it's selling for. <laughs> oh, I def- definitely couldn't. I hate, I can't do Venga Boys. Unless I'm astonishingly drunk. <laughs> Funny you should mention that. Uh, Thy Artist Murder uh, came out to the Venga Boys, and I was seeing them last Friday, well, what, a couple of Fridays ago now, actually. Uh, and that was the one time where I kicked off for it, like, so I- I'd had several. <laughs> I'd had several points <laughs> down my neck, so. I, I kind of want to go see Thy Art is Murder for the experience. I've not seen them, but I DJ'd when they, after their tour with, was it Killswitch recently, last year? They did a tour with Killswitch and Parkway Drive, yeah. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, I, they did, I did the after party for that in Cardiff. And Sick. And, like, Thy Art is Murder at, like, 2am and, like, mosh pits occurred. What a kick-off. Horrendous, yeah. <laughs> I was, um, it was one of my all-time favourite nights DJing. I uh, played, like, to a full dance or like here after my architects, um, silence speaks by while she sleeps. And then oh, man. anything can happen in the next half an hour. by Shikari, the place man. went mental. I was like, if I played those three songs in a row anywhere else, no one would, no, everyone would leave. <laughs> man, where was I? Man, I should have been <laughs> there. Man. there. Um, I mean, I've kept you already for longer than I anticipated. Actually, this has been awesome. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap this up and let you go on to enjoy the rest of your night soon. Um, but what I've noticed in the last uh, four years that people are starting to really get behind more organic and uh, local music more. Uh, is that something you've picked up on as well from when you started in 2015 running these local shows and seeing bands like Dream State? come along and gain a huge following simply out of just doing small little live shows in and around the in and around the city i think i think people do engage more but then 
I think the people that are engaging are ex- engaging to a greater extent, if that makes sense. Right. Like we've got a lovely little fan group for Nightlives and everyone's engages so much to post Nightlives memes in there and it's really lovely and people are like really engaged with what's going on. But then there's the other side which I, I see sort of DJing in a rock club where you get all these people that love rock music but they don't listen to anything new and it's so frustrating. They're still requesting Dane with a sickness kind of thing. Oh my God. I still get people ask me for... I, the amount... The amount of times on a Saturday night I have to look someone's square in the eye and go, you know it's not the 90s anymore. Yeah, It's, it's kind of like horrendous. But even people sort of my age and younger, I have like being like, just just asking Are you for... living on a prayer? That kind not, of thing. No, it's not even that anymore. It's They still, all they listen to is old MCR and old Fallout Boy. Right, and I'm like, yeah. yeah, sure. Like, you like that music, but like there's so much more out there. There's so much more, like, um, I like to think that I try and extend it to them. And I've, there's quite a few people I've met through DJing who were like that when I met them and now go to local shows. Um, but yeah, I just wish sort of like people engaged a lot more than they do a bit that, more. That's something that me and Sam on the podcast discuss quite regularly, like, uh, I think it's uh, nothing bothers me more than people that are like, oh yeah, man. I mean, I used to like uh, rock and that, but like, there's nothing great or new coming out now. And I'm like, mate, what are you listening to? Like, yeah. mate, chuck on Spotify and like just uh, t- just uh, f- chuck on Spotify and just find a random rock player list. There'll be loads of sick new bands you've never heard on on there. Uh, and I think you've made a good point there. Like, maybe the amount of people coming to the, your local shows hasn't increased, but the amount of engagement from those that are coming has increased. Yeah. Uh, and, and if we can marry those two worlds together, maybe we could be on, like, a, a massive, a continual resurgence. Well, um, that's, that's the thing, I, I'm especially in Cardiff, because it's got all the sort of emo roots from back in the day with the blackout and... Um, Etc. Except and funeral and all those really great well, kids in glass houses. Um, it's got those emo roots, and I think one of the most disappointing for me things over the last three years is the lack of support from you know of, of bands like Holding Absence and Dream State, who are actually doing a lot better outside of Wales. Um, I'd love to see like that support given to them in Cardiff, which is just a very indie city at the moment. There's, right. and th- there's nothing wrong with that, but like you need some variety in life. And yeah, I think I, that's what I'd like to see is a bit more sort of variety and yeah. But but that's the thing. Like a lot of my motivation for starting this and doing what I'm doing was no, well, no one else is doing this right now in Cardiff, so I should do it. Just gonna uh, wrap this one up, and then I'm gonna let you go, dude. Um, yeah. <laughs> the uh, your favorite musical memory? Oh Jesus! Doesn't Don't have scream. to. Doesn't have to be Stereo Brian records related. I know. I will, I will be you surprised. Just sprung if it's that on me. Oh, I'll tell you what. Actually, um, the reason why I've sprung it on you is because usually the idea that comes to you first is usually the one that that is your greatest musical memory kind of thing. Um, seeing modern baseball. Tiny Moving Parts and Into It Over It at the Joiners in Southampton in like 2015, 16. That that was like one of my all-time favourite nights where I just, 
it was absolutely rammed. It was sold out. And Mon Baseball played like their first two albums in full. It took them an hour. Um, and it was, yeah, I just, I can't, I can't remember coming out of a gig with that sort of giddiness before. Dude, this has been awesome. Uh, I'm Wicked. sorry to have kept you for so long. It's right, mean... man. I, I can chat for hours. Man. I did an, I did an interview with someone else and it took two hours before, so don't feel bad. Man, time just completely got away from me. I got so engrossed in the, in the, I mean, I do that. Like, especially on the noise meets, when, when, so on the Chris Meets interviews, a time just to completely disperse from me. I was get so into the chat. And, uh, but this has been really fascinating, man. I really appreciate your time. Um, what's next for you, man? What's coming up uh, that we can be looking out for? So, well, today we announced Vukovia coming back to Cardiff. So that's happening in May. Um, we've got some new signings coming. We've got some new music from Night Lives coming. And I'm get, I start launching a new night at Metro's in Cardiff very soon as well, a new club night. So very busy. <laughs> Luke, if it wasn't for the for the sites like uh, yourselves and Noise, um, the underground of music just wouldn't be getting uh, a voice and wouldn't be able to uh, be put out there. So. Uh, you know, like the big boys like Metal Hammer, Kerrang, Rock Sound, they're not paying attention or haven't got the time to pay attention to some of those that are on the bottom rung of the ladder. So uh, sites like yourself, sites like ourselves, uh, we're really keeping it going and we're, and we're shouting for the bands that deserve to be shouted about. Um, unbelievably massive props to you for everything you've achieved so far. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, playing a part in the success that I've got no doubt that you will get in the future. Uh, and we'll do as many noise and stereo brain records, co-joint things as we possibly can. Oh, I look forward you to it, you, you don't want to... I'm going to get you into so many... Uh, so many little schemes now. You've said Let's that. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> you, dude, you've got my email, and I promise you this time won't take us like four months to sort it. All right. <laughs> let, let's, let's get scheming then. <laughs> let's, let's get scheming, man. Dude, um, Luke, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Cheers, man.